I've titled the message, Are You Envious of the Rich? And we're going to be looking at James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Maybe just as you sat down, would you just stand up one more time in the reading as we seek to honor His Word? Stand up for the reading of God's Word. And I'd like to read James 5, 1 through 6. You follow along. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And then this verse, be patient, therefore, brothers, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. You may sit down. Many commentators, and I, I suppose many pastors, skip this passage because of the, the graphic description of judgment given to the rich. And I really believe that it is a description of judgment given to the rich who are um, wicked, if I were to say. I don't think it's a judgment against us. And so James continues here, building his argument through this book. I've listed for you there what we've covered so far in the previous weeks in James' epistle. We've talked about our faith being tested here first in our response to trials then it was tested in our reaction to temptations, then it's tested in our reception in those temptations to the Word of God, and then it was tested in our view of partiality and how we react to people when they come in or whom we meet and so forth in James chapter 2, and then it was tested in our relationship to works that our faith needs to be accompanied by works, and then tested in relation to our words, controlling our tongue. Then it was tested in relation to wisdom, to have a heavenly wisdom, not an earthly wisdom. And then we just finished that it was tested in relationship to the world, to not love the world. And he gave a scathing indictment on you adulteresses. And so we come to feature number nine, that our faith here is tested in response to wealth. It's tested in response to wealth. I mean, nothing more clearly reveals our faith than our understanding on money and possessions. Nothing. Nothing. Scripture often speaks about our view of money and possessions. Maybe some of you remember that in the lion the witch in the wardrobe, C.S. Lewis, told of the boy by the name of Edmund who sampled the witch's Turkish delight, then sacrificed all that is good to get more of it, only to find that the more he gorged himself on it, the sicker and less satisfied he became. And I think so is it as we think about wealth, as we think about riches, that the more we seek after it, the less satisfied we become. You know, when you look back, Grace Church of the Valley, the Bible warns us regarding money. 
regarding the love of money. I think we're well acquainted that money is not wrong, but Paul said it's the love of money that is sin. But I think of Achan and his lust for possessions back in Joshua 7, brought death to himself, brought death to his family. You think of Balaam's greed in Numbers 22. He would have cursed God's people for Balak's payments. You think of Delilah in Judges 6, who deceptively betrayed Samson to the Philistines for a fee. Think of Solomon's passion for wealth. And because he was so passionate about his wealth, it led him to disobey God. Because the Scripture tells us that he accumulated horses, gold, silver, and wives, clearly forbidden in Deuteronomy 17 for a king not to do. Then as you continue in the Old Testament, you have Gehazi, because of greed, lied to Naaman and to Elisha, for which he was inflicted with leprosy in 2 Kings chapter 5. You think of in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, who withheld money they said was given to the Lord, and they were struck dead. I think you would agree in the ultimate act of treachery, Judas sold the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. There's many warnings in the Scripture. And here I bring you to this one this morning in James 5, 1 through 6. It is one of the strongest indictments in all of the Scripture regarding the future status of the wealthy. Now, as we approach this text, we have to answer a very, very important question. If you glance down in your Bible again, in verse 1, just as it opens up in that phrase, come now, it says, you rich. Here's the question that must be answered and must be a question for you at Grace Groups this week. Are the rich in this passage believers or unbelievers? That's the question. As, as, he, as we approach the text, we need to understand whom is James addressing. Now, if you go back to James chapter 1 for a second, look back there. You remember in James 1, he addressed the wealthy there when he said, let the brother... Uh, it says, let the bro- lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. We said there that he was probably identifying those who were wealthy within the flock. But we also know that in James chapter 2, remember there in verse 1 or in verse 2, he says, if a man, 2-2, two, two, wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and the poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and you pay, pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and say, you sit here in the good place, and to the poor man, you stand over there, and so forth. So there, evidently, within that flock, you had a rich person entering into the very flock. In fact, remember, go back to James chapter 2. He says in verse 6 to the flock there, you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into courts? So you ask the question then as we come into James chapter 5, whom is James addressing? Is he addressing the believer who needs to be rebuked for the sin of using his money wrongly? Or is he addressing what I would call the wicked, wealthy unbeliever outside of the church? My answer would be maybe perhaps both. Perhaps both, but primarily, he's addressing wealthy believers 
outside the church. And I'll share with you why I believe that. But I think it also serves notice to believers whose allegiance to Christ is infected by their love for the world. The, the reason that I think this is primarily unbelievers is because of the transition in verse 7. You, you know, he gives a scathing rebuke, and we'll teach from that. But he says in verse 7, do you see that? Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. It's as almost as though as he writes to the unbelieving rich wealthy, and then he says in 5-7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. In light of what the rich were doing to some here, he wants to remind them. In fact, what's fascinating is that term brethren just walks down. Look at what he says in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. Look at verse 10. As an example of the suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets. Verse 12. But of all, he says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear. Look over at verse 19 of chapter 5. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. The reason I point that out is there is no mention of the term brothers in 1 through 6. And in fact, there's not even here a call to repentance to the rich. There is only judgment that awaits the rich. So I really believe it's primarily written to unbelievers, which would leave you and I with the question then, why did James write this section? Why did he put it in the Word of God? If he's writing primarily to a group of people who will not hear this and will not repent, then why is it in the Scripture? And I think here's the key. It's here to encourage us to see the miserable end of the rich apart from Christ. That's why he writes. He writes, one, one scholar said, to persuade us from the folly of setting our sights upon wealth or envying those who possess it or striving feverishly to obtain it. That's why he writes. He writes to encourage us to see their end apart from a relationship with Christ. So what I want to do as we walk through this is he gives us three compelling reasons to not envy the rich, okay? Now, let me just make this comment here. There's nothing wrong with wealth itself. You know that. If you go back into the Scripture, Abraham was an extremely wealthy man. Solomon was an extremely wealthy man. David was an extremely wealthy man. Job, early and later in his life, was an extremely wealthy man. In the New Testament, Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man. In fact, the Bible's so clear in Deuteronomy 8.18, and I would say this to encourage you, that God is giving you power to make money. That's what Deuteronomy 8.18 says. He's empowering you to make money. So God does not condemn the wealthy per se, just for the sake of money. But our Lord did say, and many warnings come out this way, beware, Luke 12, and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance 
does his life consist of his possessions? There's warnings in the scripture, is there not? You remember in the parable of the sower and the seed, one of those seeds, if you will, fell into the soil. And Jesus said the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things came in and choked the word. And so there it was pictured as choking and he called it the deceitfulness of riches. And so you have it in the scripture. You remember, do you not, Grace Church of the Valley, when the rich young ruler was told that he was to sell all that he had to inherit eternal life. The Bible says that he went away grieved because he had great wealth to which Jesus said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, of course, it's not impossible. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So there's great warnings, is there not, in the Scripture? Certainly, you could probably recite from heart Jesus. What he said in Matthew 6, 24 is that no one can serve what? Two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. But Jesus said you cannot serve God and wealth. And so there's great warning in the Scripture. And so here, James gives us these three compelling reasons to not envy the rich. Let's walk through those reasons. First, the first reason not to envy the rich is because they face a coming disaster. They face a coming disaster. Look at verse 1. He says, come now, you rich. And again, I, don't, I think he's addressing people outside the church here. They could be in the church if the shoe fits where. But he says, come now, you rich. And here's what he says. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And you'll note there that it's coming upon them. And so they face what I said here in the outline is a coming disaster. Now, the opening phrase there in first one, look down again at your Bible. Come now, you rich. It's really just a, a sharp call to attention. It's very similar. The second place that word was used is look back just a few verses in 4.13 of James. Come now you who say today or tomorrow. Where here in 5.1, it's come now you rich. There's a coming disaster coming upon them. And it's mentioned and expressed in two graphic terms. Look what he said in verse 1. He says weep first and then how. Weep is the, is the word to weep bitterly. And, and frankly, it's a very graphic word. And it's not just kind of a sob. It's a, it's a, it's a deep weeping, bitterly weeping. And in John 11, it was used for wailing for the dead. So what he says to the rich, you who are patting your own comforts in this life, Rather than enjoying your luxury and comfort, you are going to face a coming disaster and you should weep, weep. And, and then he mentions this word. Look again, secondly, there in 5 1, howl. And the word howl is the ideal of shrieking, it's the concept of even screaming. And it is a violent expression of grief and even pain. What's fascinating about James, he's functioning like a prophet because those words were used in the Old Testament by the prophets to describe the reaction of the wicked when the day of the Lord arrives. Those prophets in the Old Testament would say, weep and howl, because in the coming future would be the day of the Lord. 
So he tells the rich here to weep and howl. Look at the text again in 5.1. For the miseries that are coming about upon you. In other words, the picture is that of an intense vocal sobbing with howls and agony at the return of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is what the scripture says. So I think the Lord is giving us a compelling reason not to envy them, for they're going to face a coming disaster. I'm thinking of what Jesus said in Luke 6.24. He said, but woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. But then he said, but woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And so what a picture of those who are receiving their comfort in full right now. But at a coming day, they're, they're going to mourn and weep. And you can't help but think of those expressions there when you think of the doctrine of hell, when Jesus said in Matthew eight twelve that the sons of the kingdom will be cast into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of what? Of teeth. Do you really want to be envious of them? And so he's really coming after our faith, and he says, you don't want to ever envy the rich because you don't want to envy their coming future disaster where he tells them to weep and howl because of the misery that is coming upon them. So how can we envy the rich when their future is a place of weeping and howling? But secondly, here's the second reason not to envy the rich. Because they face a coming devastation. A coming devastation. Look what the, James says in verse 2 and 3. He says, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, and verse 3, your gold and silver have corroded. Now, he mentions three commodities there, if you will. First, riches, then clothes, then money. And what I find interesting, as you look down, I'm sure it's in most translations, you'll note that the, the verbs here are in what we call the perfect tense. Look at it. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded. Meaning that James is so certain in the perfect tense that the decay will take place that he describes it as already happened. Very interesting. Look first, he says, your riches, in verse 2, have rotted. And that word for rotted describes rotten wood. It, des it describes something that's decayed. For those of you in the agricultural business, it described fruit that was rotted. In other words, your riches that you're holding on to, your riches that you think are bringing you security, have rotted right in front of you. In other words, they're worthless. They're like the rich young fool in Luke chapter 12 when he built all of his barns and he said, I built my barns and I said to my soul, take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, you fool, for tomorrow you will give it away to another. He called him a fool and so he says, your riches are rotted. Secondly, look what he says there. He says in verse 2, your garments are moth-eaten. Now, I think you know that wealth in biblical times was often measured in garments. You just look back in the scripture, Jacob gave Joseph a coat of many, what? 
colors. I mean, it was something that he wore and it was something that he was recognized for. You think of the heroic efforts of Samson who promised 30 changes of garments to the one who guessed the riddle in Joshua 14. Paul interestingly said in Acts 20 verse 33, he said, I have coveted no one's silver or gold. And then he said, or apparel because often one's wealth was in what they wore. Now, what's interesting here is, look at the text again. It says in verse 2, your garments are moth-eaten. I think it's interesting because uh, moths don't actually eat garments. Rather, what moths do is they, they have a liquid that, that is excreted by a larvae that breaks down the wool in the garments. And so here what James is saying to the wealthy, wicked, rich, unbeliever, as wealthy as these garments were in the heat, moss would destroy them because they had no mothballs in those days. Does it not remind you of our Lord Jesus' words where he said, Do not store up your treasures on earth where moth and rust, what? Destroy. Don't do it even for us. In other words, he's saying to the rich, Think about it. Your designer clothes, your designer jackets, your designer suits, boots, blouses, labels in the day of judgment will be worthless. There's a coming here devastation that they will face. But look, he notes that third commodity there in verse 3. He said, your silver, your gold and your silver have now, it says here in the ESV, corroded. Some translations say rusted. But they've corroded. They've rusted. And the thought of the word is they've corroded all the way through. Now, what's interesting is that gold and silver do not actually corrode. You know that. They don't actually rust. And some say that James was actually speaking literally that the coins of that time were mixed with what some writers would say was a, was a large percentage of alloy. And they did actually rust. But I think more likely, James states to the rich that their hoarded gold and silver at judgment day would prove as worthless as rusted out metal. In other words, even what appears to be the most permanent earthly treasure has no lasting significance on judgment day. In fact, not only have they corroded, but look what he says to the rich in verse 3. He says there in the middle, their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Wow. In other words, he tells the rich that your hoarded capital will declare your guilt. And what the rich person thought would bring security will actually be an indictment against his very own soul before God. MacArthur said in his commentary, quote, In the day of judgment, hoarded, rotten, moth-eaten, corroded treasures will give graphic testimony against the rich. He said their covetous, compassionless, earthbound approach of life will provoke their very condemnation, end of quotes. Pretty frightening. I mean, you don't want to envy the rich, do you? You don't want to envy what they have, do you? You don't want to envy the things they own because the very things they own will not only last, but the very things they own will be evidence against them. In fact, not only does James portray the corrosion as evidence of their guilt, but he also says their, well, their hoarded riches will become the executioner of his wrath. Look at verse 3 again. 
he says it will eat your flesh like fire. I mean, this is a graphic picture of hell. At judgment day, their rusted wealth, like a rusty chain, will eat into their pampered flesh like a festering sore, so said D. Edmund Hebert. I mean, this is just graphic, is it not? In fact, I'm thinking of Revelation 14.9. You don't have to turn there if you write the, the reference down. The angel said in Revelation 14, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark on his forehand or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of the wrath of God. And there in Revelation 14, it says, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises up forever and ever. So just think of this picture. These wicked, wealthy, rich, likely outside of the church, are doing everything to pad their own comforts, to accumulate as much as they can, to gain as much as they can. And what James says to them is, listen, they're their riches and their corroded wealth is going to be evidence against them and it will eat their flesh like fire. I'm just thinking of Revelation 20, verse 15. If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Very, very graphic description of hell. In fact, if this wasn't enough, look at the last phrase in verse 3. Fascinating. He says there, you have laid up treasure in the last days. Interesting that they've laid it up. In other words, they're laying it up to take care of their future. And the utter irony here is the reversal of the table that what they're really laying it up for is not their future, but they're laying it up, if you will, for their judgment in the last days. Now you say, when is the last days? Well, the last days we know from Hebrews 1, 2, began with the birth of Jesus Christ. It will find its fulfillment immediately preceding the second coming of Jesus Christ in 2 Timothy 3.1. So the last days is the time frame between the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so here the wealthy treasure, their safety, and actually it's going to be a witness against their future and so they will incur a greater, greater judgment. So he says to us, beloved, don't envy the rich. All that makes a person wealthy in this life may rob him of everything in the next life. He says, be very careful. So the first reason to not envy the rich is because they face a coming disaster. Secondly, he says, don't envy the rich because they face a coming devastation in which all that they own will be a witness against them. And then thirdly, he says, don't envy the rich because they face a coming destruction. A coming destruction. And he gets specifically to the point of what they did. Fascinating. Look at verse 4. He says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of Host. He says there, he speaks of laborers. Interesting for our own setting here. You know what a laborer is. He's talking about an agricultural worker 
And in this setting, they were dependent upon their daily earnings for those they worked for. I think we understand that. Laborers, in this passage, look again in verse 4, mowed your fields, okay? In other words, they gathered in the harvest, okay? They worked for you, they mowed your fields, they gathered in the harvest. Now look what these unbelievers did in verse 4. Which you kept back by what? Fraud. And the idea here is that the rich landowner had no intention of paying his workers. And I want you to know as you read the scripture and study it, the scene here is deliberately set after the harvest. In other words, the owners were well able to pay wages. Now let me just make this statement. Wealth is not wrong, okay, when it is acquired legally and legitimately. We stated that in Deuteronomy 8.18. But when it is acquired illegally and illegitimately, the Bible calls it here fraud. Fraud. These men, maybe I'd say women, worked. And they should have been paid that day. And this is a biblical principle. I don't have time to turn you to all the scriptures. But in 1 Timothy 5.18, you could probably finish the statement. The laborer is worthy of his, what? Wages. In other words, if he worked, you pay him. He's worthy of his wages, 1 Timothy 5.18. In fact, when you begin to dig on this, in the Old Testament, it required the poor to be paid before the sun would set. In fact, it says this in Leviticus 19.13. It says there, you shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. And then it says that the wages of a hired man are to not remain with you all night until morning. In other words, pay the guy. Pay him what he did. Now, obviously, the, the paychecks are coming, and it's a little different in our own economy in the, in, in the sense that you will pay. But here they were dependent upon their food, and some of these landowners were keeping it back. In fact, Deuteronomy 24.14 says this very clearly, You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor, for you shall give him his wages on the day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it so that he may not cry against you to the Lord and it becomes sin to you. So this is a very clear scriptural principle. A day without wages for them in this setting was a day without food. In fact, Jeremiah was so clear in 22.13. He said, woe to him. Woe, curse be to him, if you will, who uses his neighbor's services without pay and does not give him his wages. I mean, this is a serious, serious deal. And so what James says in this text right where we were reading is that two cries go up before the Lord. Look at it again in verse 4. They are crying out, and I think what's crying out is the wages of the laborer, are crying out against you, okay? And the cries of the harvesters 
have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. In other words, this vocal duet is going up before God. The wages, if you will, are crying out. And the workers who are not receiving those wages, and it's going before a holy God. In fact, it's kind of a graphic word when it mentions the word crying out. It means to shout. It means to scream. So don't think, Lord, I hope I get paid. Yeah, it's not like that. It's this violent, loud scream that's going up into the courts of heaven to the Lord of hosts. In fact, the word was used in Mark 9.26 of the cry of a demon being expelled from its victim just to give you a picture of what that crying out is like. And I think it's interesting that though the rich landowners are deaf to the laborer's cry, I just want you to know God is not, right? And you can look at this, and time permits, but Genesis 4.10. Remember when God came to Abel and Cain and Abel, and he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying up to me from the ground. Listen, the Lord doesn't need a hearing aid, right? He knows everything. He sees everything. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresence. And this cry is going up. I'm thinking of that exchange in Exodus 3-7 where, where it says, I have surely seen with Egypt and Israel in Egypt. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters for I am aware of their sufferings. Interesting. Now, look back at the, at the text again. I don't want to get too technical, okay? But just to give you the sense of what was happening here, the laborers, and I'll, you watch this, who mowed your fields. Now, now, you'll note that it's set here in what we call the aorist tense. I'm talking about the word mowed. In other words, it's aorist indicating the task was already accomplished. They mowed them, aorist tense accomplished action, okay? Then look this, verse 4 again. Yet you kept back, it says, by fraud. And that word for kept back is what we call in the language an imperfect. In other words, what the text is saying is that these rich landowners held back the wage with never a thought in the mind that they're going to pay them. Very interesting. They mowed it, they did it, but these guys kept it back and they knew it all the time. Now, I will, now the other thing is, look at verse 4 again. And the cries of the harvesters, and the word crying out or the cries of the harvesters, interesting, is present tense. In other words, it's continuing to go up as a vocal duet before God. In other words, that cry is heard in the court of heaven. In fact, not only is it heard in the court of heaven, I mean, this is just frightening. Look what the text says in verse 4. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears, what does it say, of the Lord of hosts. Or if you have an NASB, the, the Lord of Sabaoth. What does that mean? It just means the Lord of armies. Okay? That's what the phrase means. It is a majestic title, is the Lord of hosts, a title of God expressing not only His majesty, 
not only as power as creator and ruler of the world, but also as the commander of the host of heaven leading an army in defense of his people. And in this case, leading an army against the defense of the poor. In fact, if you go back, you don't have to turn, but in 1 Samuel 17, it was in the name of the Lord of hosts that David withstood Goliath. And so, beloved, listen. God never stands by idly while the poor are being oppressed. God does not forget, it says in Psalm 90, excuse me, Psalm 912, the cry of the afflicted. So omnipotent God, to whom all the hosts of the universe are subject, is the very protector of the poor. And the cry here has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, what's amazing, though, is that though the laborer's pay is withheld, you say, well, guy, maybe the guy came into a bad business deal. Maybe he just hit, maybe there was a drought. Maybe, maybe hail can't. No, no, no. That's not what the text says. They kept it back. You say, well, how were they living? Look at the text in 5.5. He says to these rich, though they kept it back by fraud, you have lived on the earth in luxury And in self-indulgence and frightening, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. He says right so clearly in 5, you have lived on earth in luxury. I think the NASB says luxuriously. In other words, you know what the word means? It's kind of fascinating. Literally, you've lived a soft, pampered, self-indulgent lifestyle at the expense of the back of the poor. Soft lifestyle, self-indulgent lifestyle. Listen, beloved, far from being first century Robin Hoods, stealing from the rich and to give uh, to the poor, these wicked rich stole from the poor to pad their own lifestyle. And because they did that, look again at verse 5. You have, at the end of 5, fattened your hearts as in the day of what? Slaughter. My neighbor has cattle. Sometimes I go over there, make faces at him, try to, and I know he's just beefing them up, right? He's just beefing them up. They just sit there eating all day. The steer is beefed up for slaughter. You know what James says here? So too the rich, scary, have fattened themselves for the day of slaughter and the day of judgment. Now, when James uses that word, this is, this is rich here. When he talks about the day of slaughter, he's using an Old Testament prophetic term that likens the day of God's judgment to the day of the slaughter of his enemies. Isaiah chapter 34, Jeremiah chapter 46, Jeremiah chapter 50. He says, you know what you're doing? He says, you're withholding it. All the while, you're living a soft, pampered, self-indulgent lifestyle. You yourself are like that steer, you know, beefing himself up to go to the slaughterhouse. And, and, if, and if this is your heart, he says, listen, this is what awaits the rich. You know, it's kind of frightening. This isn't the only place this ideal is mentioned. You remember in Noah's day, remember? Judgment was coming. And it says in Noah's day that the people were eating Drinking and what? Marrying. And they did not know that judgment was coming upon them. I always used to think that it meant that they were just having a wild party in Noah's day. I don't think that's what it means. 
I think when it meant that they were eating, drinking, and marrying, they're just living. That's what it means. I mean, these are not party animals in Noah's day. They're just eating. They're just drinking. And they're marrying and giving in marriage and so forth. They had no idea. Judgment was coming. And so he says here to the rich, listen, they're fattening themselves for the day of slaughter. It's a scary thought. I'm thinking of the men of Sodom and Gomorrah living in sin. When the Lord rained down fire and brimstone from heaven, so too in our day the wicked rich living in luxury are fattening themselves for the coming day of slaughter. There's a coming destruction, is there not? In fact, look how he finishes it in verse 6. He says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. That's a rich word again, the word condemned. The word was used, the word for condemned, in a legal system. And it literally was used in legal terms and in legal decisions. And condemned is the ideal of perverting justice. In fact, remember back in 2.6, he says, this is not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court. And I think we would understand biblically that God established the court system to dispense justice. And judges were not to be greedy. They were not to show partiality. They were not to tolerate perjury. They were not to take a bribe, Exodus 23, 6. But here, the rich have used the system for their own advantage. They just go buy themselves out of it. They just go get the right people. They go get the right lawyers. They set up the right deal. They set up the right judge. They pay the judge off. They take a bribe, whatever. They give a bribe, whatever they need to do. He says, you've not only condemned them, but look what he says in verse 6. You've murdered the righteous person. Now, you would have to ask, is it figurative, figuratively or literal? They condemned him and murdered, like physically? Or they condemned him and deprived him of their living? I, I don't know. What do you think? Could be either, okay? Cannot be sure. In fact, when you begin to trace it out figuratively, it was used as that idea of murdered in this context to deprive one of livelihood. In fact, there's a writing in the second century by a man by the name of Joshua bin Sirah. And he said this, quote, The bread of the needy is the life of the poor. Whoever deprives them of it is a man of blood. He said to take away a neighbor's living is to murder him. To deprive an employee of his wages is to shed blood, end of quote. And so what the rich were doing is using the court systems to either murder the poor physically or strip them mercilessly of their livelihood. And the outcome, look at the last phrase. He, and, and by the way, just a comment there. You've murdered the righteous person. Some people say that's a picture of Christ there. That you, you took Christ to court and, and that the righteous person is the Lord Jesus Christ and you murdered him. It, it could be. But I think best in the context here, I think it would be the, the poor. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person in the context, the poor person. And look at the last phrase in verse 6. He does not, what? Resist you. I just think it's just saying, what can he do? What can the poor laborer do? You're going to go get the big power attorney, okay? And, and what can he do? What, what, what can he do? Probably nothing. 
He does not resist you. I mean, the injustice is awful. You say, well, pastor, what's our response to this? What do we do when we see this injustice? And what do we do when we see the, the rich and the unbeliever, or the, the wicked, profiting at the expense of everybody else? I think this. Look at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until what? The coming of the Lord. You know, just a word, and we'll get into this in a couple weeks. Not next week is Father's Day. You might want to miss that one. It'll be real convicting. I'm getting ready for it. In my own heart, I'm already convicted of it. Okay, but listen, listen. Here, you got to be patient until the coming of the Lord. I just want to encourage you, it might not never get fixed. You say, well, Scott, I got stabbed at work. You know, figuratively. The guy took my bonus. The guy took my spot. The guy took my position. The guy took my business. You know, I trusted this guy, and he ripped me off, and it's in maybe the court system, or you couldn't get it in the court system, and you're waiting. Listen, I think he's just trying to tell us this, is you got to be patient. We'll talk about that. Until the coming of the Lord, okay? And he refers here to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So you say, well, Scott, in light of this, then, what's my takeaway? And why does he write it? I think he gives three compelling reasons not to envy the rich, okay? Yeah, I mean, when you walk out of here, don't envy him. Because I'm thinking of the words of Jesus, and you know it well. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his what? Soul. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? You don't want to envy them. You don't want their lifestyle because in the end, they're fattening themselves for the day of slaughter. Be content with what you have. Don't forget what Job said in 121. You know it well. Naked I have come from my mother's womb and naked I shall, what? Return. You can't take it with you. So if you can't take it with you, don't spend your life trying to accumulate it. Don't spend your life trying to please people. Don't spend your life trying to gain stuff. Make for yourself treasures which, haven't, you know, which don't you know, fail and don't wear out and so forth. I mean, maybe you remember that great song that I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches, what? Untold. I think that's the life of a believer. So he just encourages us, if you've been taken advantage of, if someone has stripped you of something, be encouraged. Let me just give you a couple verses. Look over at Luke 12. Would you go back there? Look, turn to Luke 12. What a great statement our Lord gives us here. In Luke 12, it says this in verse 20. Luke 12, what a great text. 1232, excuse me. It's a great text by our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what the takeaway for us. Fear not, little flock, 1232. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the what? The kingdom. Don't you worry about your house on this earth. Don't you worry about your cars on this earth. Don't worry about your riches on this earth. He's gladly chosen you, little flock, to give you the kingdom. And so he says to us in verse 33, sell your possessions. Give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What a great, great text. 
What a great text. Listen, sell, give. Look over where you, one final one in 1 Timothy. And, and this is a word for all of us because, you know, when you come in here, you might be playing spiritual basketball. And what I mean by that is you're passing it to some people who you think are very wealthy and who this is maybe directed to. And I just want to encourage you, um, just honestly, as your pastor, all of you are wealthy. All of you. If you travel the globe, <laughs> you are wealthy beyond imagination. You know, yesterday I pulled in, I was hot. I got an iced tea from McDonald's. It's a buck, right? And then we were moving about getting ready for Hume, and then I stopped at um, Subway, that classic restaurant. $3 for a sandwich, and you know, because I can buy an iced tea and because I can go buy a sandwich, I'm wealthy. And so I just want you to know you're all wealthy. You say, well, well, what should we do? Well, look what Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 17. He says, as, yeah, 6, 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them, all of you, not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to us, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Beloved, be givers, not a hoarder, okay? And don't be envious of the rich in any way. Jim Elliott said this. Maybe this would be our prayer. He said, Father, let me be weak that I might lose my clutch on everything temporal. My life, my reputation, my possessions. Elliott said, Lord, let me lose the tension of the grasping hand. May that be the case with us this morning. Would you bow your head even now? And as your head is bowed, I'm going to call the worship team up. And I don't know why, particularly my mind's on some of you young men in here. But listen to this poem as the worship team prepares. It's an unknown author penned these words. Listen in light of this text. I had walked life's path with an easy tread had followed where comfort and pleasure led. And then by chance, a quiet place, I met my master face to face. With station and rank and wealth for goal, much thought for the body, but none for the soul, I had entered to win this life's mad race when I met my master face to face. I had built my castles, reared them high, till their towers had pierced the blue of the sky. I had sworn to rule with an iron mace when I met my master face to face. I met him and know him and blushed to see that his eyes full of sorrow were fixed on me. I had faltered and fell at his feet that day while my castles vanished and melted away. Melted and vanished and in their place I saw naught else but my master's face. 
And I cried aloud, Oh, make me meet to follow the marks of thy wounded feet. My thought is now for the souls of men. I have lost my life to find it again. Ever since alone in that holy place, my master and I stood face to face. 